Well, hi there, and welcome back. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism, and I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and I'm excited to have you joining us uh, for the natural resources to help your children recover from autism. And as I always tell you, the definition of recovery is to regain health, and we don't know what level of recovery each child will get to, but we do know they can improve. And I was told once upon a time that my son, who was diagnosed with autism, would not recover and that I should drug him and that I should maybe try some behavioral therapies and good luck, that would be it. We would be managing symptoms the rest of his life. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to find out what the causes were of what was what what was creating his his stomach aches, headaches, anxiety, sleepless nights, oppositional defiance disorder, uh, all of the other the issues that went along with, with autism, I, I, I wanted to find out how I could make him more comfortable, get him better. And so I began researching, and now 13 years later, my son is totally recovered. He lives away on his own at college. He's happy. He's healthy. He's a mellow, easygoing guy. And I want as much optimum recovery for your child as possible. And um, I have created a free workshop that I wanted to share with you. It's to help you recover your children from the symptoms of autism, give you a little bit more education. And the three steps are uh, healing the gut. And the second stage is detoxification, including safe, natural heavy metal detoxification, and then brain support and repair. So if you're interested in that, please go to naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop. No spaces there, just free workshop. And um, and uh, join in right away. It's available to you right now. And anything that we talk about in this episode today will uh, be at the link naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash vaccine. And so that's giving you the information that you need about um, what today's episode is about. And we have J.B. Handley with us, who has just written a book. He's the co-founder of Generation Rescue, and he's just written a book called How to End the Autism Epidemic. And so what we want to do is share with you what that means. So I'm going to give you a little brief piece of uh, JB's background, and uh, and then he can share his story with you um, because it's similar to yours and mine. JB Handley is the co-founder and chairman of Generation Rescue, a nonprofit organization focused on helping children recover from autism that was inspired by the journey of his son, Jameson, who was diagnosed with autism in 2004. He is also the co-producer of the documentary film Autism Yesterday and the co-founder of the Age of Autism blog. Handley co-founded Swander Pace Capital, a middle market private equity firm with more than $1.5 billion under management, where he served as managing director for two decades, and he is an honors graduate at Stanford University and lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Lisa, and three children. So it's important to understand that the increase in autism is 277 percent since 1970, and in 2017, it was one in 45 kids being diagnosed with autism. Today, that's one in 36 kids. So there is an epidemic going on, and we're going to share a bit more uh, about why that might be happening and what you can do about it. So first of all, JB, I really want to thank you so much for writing this book. Um, I think it's so important to really just educate parents so that when they make any decisions for their children, they are educated decisions. So welcome. 
Thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be here. And I want to clarify, um, the autism rate has actually gone up 277-fold. Uh, that's about a 30,000% increase. And I think that huh. it's just shocking for parents to recognize that. But the number was well-documented at 1 in 10,000. And the number today is 1 in 36. And I just I think sometimes we, we lose sight of history and how extreme a situation we're really in and everybody knows somebody with a child with autism it's it's really utter madness when you when you understand how much prevalence has really changed so i just wanted to clarify that yeah it, it's really astonishing and uh and i i was looking through you know your book really states some of the the pieces too i think it's important to look at the 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 stages that it's come in it's been really a matter of of, of looking at what what triggered this this change all of a sudden that there are so many more kids diagnosed and um, and then really ha- so how it started and then the second piece is why scientists have changed their views that many highly respected doctors and scientists are saying now that vaccinations actually have something to do with the cause and then the third is of course recovery and what we can do so we definitely want to cover all of those pieces as much as we can get to in this uh, episode today because uh, I would like to, again, give fact-based information to parents. We really want to make sure we say right up front, because I want you to keep an open mind, and I appreciate the listeners having an open mind, that we're not anti-vaxxers. We're not vaxxers. We're not anti-vaxxers. This is just about educating with knowledge and fact-based, science-based knowledge so that you have more of more education when you walk into an office and somebody tells you that you should do this and and that it's safe and this is you know that you have some some background to say well you know now i know this and maybe you 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 decide make different decisions for your children but it's based on educated decisions so um why don't we get into it jb with um some of the the pieces about how it started and you know you have some a lot of this great information in your book but uh let's give the audience a little background on that yeah and so i think the first thing to explain to people is that the science today is very clear that autism is caused by immune activation events in the brain of children at the wrong time during development it's just important to start there because Otherwise, you can't establish a clear cause and effect, okay? And so immune activation events in the brains of babies happen for a number of reasons. When they do, they impair brain development, and over time, the outcome is autism. I think it's fair to say that despite the fact that maybe most people haven't heard of that, it's bordering on scientific fact fact now. There's enough published evidence of how these immune activation events take place. There was a seminal work published back in 2005 by Pardo, at Johns Hopkins where they looked at brains of people who had died who had autism. And and what they effectively concluded was that all the brains were inflamed and people with autism are suffering from a sort of a permanent ongoing simmering infection. We need to start with that foundation because then everything makes sense. So if if you accept the science as it's now been clearly published and delineated over time, that people with autism are suffering from a permanent ongoing brain infection an immune activation event that never turns off, then the obvious question would be, what's creating this state of affairs? Um, Beginning in 1986, everything about vaccinations in the United States changed. 
The reason it changed was that the vaccine industry was on the brink of going bankrupt because a vaccine, the DTP vaccine, was causing brain injury in too many children, which should have been a pretty big red flag back then. Therefore, Congress took away all the liability from vaccine makers for damage caused by their vaccines in the, in the 1986 law. By 1989, a vaccine court had been set up where all parents can go if their child has a vaccine injury to try to get compensated. And what parents think would happen is what did happen. There was an explosion in the number of vaccines created for children. So we went from three vaccines that were given to kids in the mid-1980s. That would be MMR, DTP, and polio. Today, we have 11 licensed vaccines given to children. Um, we also went from vaccination rates before the 1986 law that were in the 50 to 60% range nationally. And today, we're north of 90% nationally. And so what's, what's true is that children today receive massively more vaccinations than children received in the mid-1980s. And what's also true is we have learned that one of the primary ways to trigger an immune activation event in the brain of a baby is with a vaccine. And so it stands to reason logically that if immune activation events in the brains of babies cause autism and you give babies way more of something that causes immune activation events in the brains of babies, you're going to have more autism and that's exactly what's happened. And so I don't want to be <clears throat> black and white and say vaccines are the singular reason that we have more autism. But I think without a question, they are the primary reason that we have more autism. And the most obvious culprit, although the science continues to evolve, is actually the aluminum that's in a majority of the childhood vaccines. And the reason that aluminum is an obvious culprit is that the aluminum in vaccines is a man-made aluminum whose entire purpose is to hyperstimulate the immune system. Okay, that's why it's injected into the body, to hyperstimulate the immune system. <laughs> Hyperstimulation of the immune system is a synonym for immune activation. And we now have, since about 2010, an overwhelming body of new science published that is biological science, meaning that they're injecting vaccines into mice and baboons and other things to see what happens to the brains of these mammals. And what happens is that the aluminum, which is man-made, and the body doesn't know how to recognize it, ends up in the brain. And it ends up in the brain for much longer than people thought. And when it gets to the brain, guess what it does? It triggers an immune activation event. And so I think part of the reason I felt so compelled to, I would say, finally write a book, because I've actually been writing about the topic of autism for more than a decade, the reason I felt so compelled to finally write a book was that I felt the science had become so complete on ex in explaining this cause-effect relationship, primary triggers, immune activation events, et cetera, that we were at a point of nearing scientific certainty. And my hope is by exposing parents to this science, they can start to make their own decisions about when and how to vaccinate. And, and perhaps more importantly, parents who have children who are already affected, who already have autism, every bit of data we get creates a better roadmap, in my opinion, for how to recover a child. How can I recover a child with autism if I don't know what happened to them? How can I recover them if I don't know what's going on in their body that's, that's uh, misaligned, if you will? And so I think the science really dovetails nicely to everything you're trying to do in terms of giving parents, empowering parents with the tools to help them recover. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because it took me many years to research. And now I, I have a lot of that information available to them now. And I don't want to have them have to use so much time and other resources trying to figure it out. I want to be able to just say here, this is what we know. We need to take a short break. And we will be right back. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we're coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Stay with us. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. And today we have J.B. Handley with us, who has just written the book called How to End the Autism Epidemic. Before the break, we were talking about how uh, vaccinations have, uh, there's a lot of facts uh, that we have now, a lot of science-based information to say things that are in them, such as aluminum and, and uh, other preservatives that have a, a lot of causal effects on neurology in the brain that are negative. And um, we all know, too, that aluminum is, is known to be one of the main contributors to Alzheimer's disease as well. There's a lot of information. I go into this in my book as well uh, uh, on vaccinations, but how aluminum and mercury uh, the effect on the brain and what small amounts it really takes to affect the brain and neurology. And um, if you have listened to the episode I did, it's episode number 10 our, on our show here, and you can find that in the archives. And um, I interviewed Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who is an MIT professor who specializes in glyphosate, which is the toxic chemical or one of the in uh, in the in Roundup, the weed killer. Well, now we're finding that in our foods, but she's also found that they're using it in the petri dishes that they're developing the MMR vaccine in. So that virus, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, right? So that when that measles virus is being grown in that petri dish with glyphosate in it, then it is going into the vaccination as well. And you're also getting glyphosate in your vaccinations. And if you really want to know more about the dangers of glyphosate, uh, please go to, to uh, show number 10 in the archives with Stephanie Seneff and, and uh, listen to that show so you get more of those details. And please don't use Roundup in your yard. Um, so, uh, JB, let's get back to, you know, some of this, again, science-based factual information that we have for our listeners that we want to make sure, you know, they're, they're understanding, um, you know, why a lot of the scientists who and doctors who have once backed, backed vaccinations and said they were safe are now having a change of heart. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing time. Um, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of propaganda in the mainstream media, and yet right below the surface, um, one of the things that's very true versus a decade ago is how many doctors and how many scientists today are standing up and telling the truth about what's happening to our children. Um, I think two of the most notable um, scientists in the world who I mentioned in my book in great detail are Andrew Zimmerman and Richard Kelly. Um, Andrew Zimmerman ran the clinic at the Kennedy Tiger Institute, arguably the most mainstream autism institute in the world, and Richard Kelly ran their laboratory. They were, they are, and they continue to evaluate children on a daily basis for signs of autism, and then they counsel parents on how to, you know, hopefully um, make their children feel better. And um, about eight years ago, um, Dr. Zimmerman and Kelly had one of their own residents have a child who, um, after a vaccine appointment, got extremely sick um, and regressed into autism. It happened right before their eyes, and um, their lab had the ability to evaluate this young girl in many different ways, and it really changed the mind of Kelly and Zimmerman, and they began to believe 
that there is a vulnerable subset of children who, if they receive multiple vaccines in a single appointment in a certain time period, um, they can regress into autism. And they were shaken by this information. And ironically, uh, Dr. Zimmerman had actually been an expert witness in vaccine court testifying against parents who pointed to vaccines as a cause of their child's autism. And Dr. Zimmerman told the vaccine court that he had changed his mind. And he was politely but firmly um, sent out the side door to never testify again in vaccine court. And it, it only emerged, Dr. Zimmerman's true feelings, through a recent court case in Tennessee involving a child who regressed into autism, where Dr. Zimmerman served as an expert witness and told the truth in a deposition. And I quote him extensively um, in my book. And I think that he, um, he raises many of the important concerns that I think the open-minded physicians and scientists around the world are now, now starting to raise. What Dr. Zimmerman is extremely concerned about is this vulnerable subset of kids. Let's just say hypothetically that three to five percent of children are at extreme risk of um, succumbing, if you will, from too many vaccines and regressing into autism. Um, if that were true, which I believe it is, they should be removed from the vaccination pool. And I think most parents would agree with that. You would not subject a child who had a high risk of regressing into autism to a set of vaccines. You wouldn't do that. And Dr. Zimmerman's point, um, Dr. Zimmerman's point and Dr. Kelly's point is that we can test for these things today. We could be screening children who have real risks from bolus doses of vaccines, from too many vaccines, and we're not. And I think that's a real travesty. And we can, we can talk more about what some of those signs are, if you will, some of those red flags that should um, cause a parent to take a step back and say, uh-oh, I may have a child who's extremely at risk from a negative reaction to a vaccine before they get their first vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. We need to take a short break. And when we come back, we will get into what some of those signs, those risk red flags are. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. We're coming to you live from Bold Brave Media. Stay with us. We will. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. And today we are talking about how to end the autism epidemic with J.B. Handley. And our subject, our topic is on vaccinations and giving you some facts and some background on really what when to know if your child might be a, a candidate to not have vaccinations and before the break we talked a little bit about some, what some of those learning about what some of those risks and red flags are and it is important to know too that you as a parent really have to be the advocate because unfortunately pediatricians do not always know. If you've watched the movie Vaxxed, and you can you can go find it at vaxxedthemovie.com, and I will link to, again, any of this and a lot of uh, studies uh, on a page I created for this episode at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash vaccination. Uh, but vaxxedthemovie.com, which is V-A-X-X-E-D, themovie.com, does show, uh, this depicts it very well, where they're handing pediatricians studies and science about vaccinations and they show them on it on you know on film researching going through what they with their you know learning and thinking and then and then uh, interviewing them afterwards and how they had no idea that uh, any of that information they really weren't given that the the you know American Pediatric Association does not offer that many of the, the these pieces of information to them so you have to know yourself 
And same thing, too, if your child has any sign of immune deficiency at all, such as even a runny nose, like they might be catching a little cold, that means their system is is diminished right now. Their immune system is not in a place. And, and JB, I'd like you to go into some of, of what you have found of some of the other uh, the risks and the red flags as well. Do you have you have a, yeah, a few things? Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me frame this in two ways. Um, first, I think that for parents who are new to this issue, it's a little hard to believe that an entire epidemic of autism and other neurological disorders. And frankly, I believe the autoimmunity epidemic is equally caused mostly by vaccines, right? That's asthma, food allergies, diabetes, et cetera. And so the fair question would be, how can something on this scale hide in plain sight, if you will? And the reasons are actually pretty clear, and I walk people through this in my book. Um, Firstly, our monitoring system for tech capturing vaccine injuries is, is really, really antiquated. We know that the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System captures less than 1% of vaccine injury, and many vaccine injuries have a latency period, meaning the time between when the child receives a vaccine and when the disease manifests could be months or years, making it very difficult to discern cause and effect. Um, secondly, um, when we test vaccines, we only test them individually versus the combination way that they're given, and the monitoring period for childhood vaccines is typically four to five days. It's really hard for people to believe that, but like the hepatitis B vaccine, they monitored children for five days after the vaccine was given for injury. You'd never catch things that took a while to manifest. Um, the third thing is that doctors, pediatricians, they're not trained to recognize vaccine injury. And so when a child comes in clearly exhibiting signs of vaccine injury, not injury, most pediatricians don't even know what that looks like. And then finally, parents have no idea, right? And so you can have this, what I call a, a circle of denial, if you will, circle of confusion around vaccine injury that allows it to sit here in plain sight um, and, and not be recognized. Or it's recognized by many, but not by the mainstream. Um, in terms of screening vulnerable children, um, I think it's one of the most important points of my book. I hope that every parent can embrace the idea that they may have a child who is simply not going to tolerate vaccinations well. One of the big challenges is that there are parts of the country where we still give hepatitis B vaccine on day one of life. And I would tell parents that I think that's an enormous mistake because it gives you no time to assess the health of your baby before the first vaccine. Other other pediatricians don't get that vaccine until a child is two months old. Um, Some of the obvious red flags for a baby that I would argue should remove them from the vaccination pool permanently. Um, Firstly would be any sort of maternal autoimmunity risk. So if the mom has suffered from any kind of autoimmunity in her life, the baby is at a dramatically higher risk for having a negative reaction to vaccination. Um, Another red flag would be what we call the MTHFR mutation. It's a genetic mutation. It's easy to find out if your baby has that, 23andMe does it, doctors can do it, et cetera. It's a gene that affects the body's ability to detoxify. And if the baby has one or two mutations on that gene, that's a red flag. Um, the next area of concern should be how the baby themselves presents. My son should have never been vaccinated. And after his two-month appointment, he clearly never should have been vaccinated again. He, um, he developed eczema overnight. He stopped sleeping through the night. His belly became distended. Uh, he got dark circles under his eyes. It's clear that he became allergic to a bunch of different foods. Those are all severe vaccine reactions. And a, and a physician who was on point and knew their stuff would have immediately said, you know what, we're going to take a time out from vaccination. This baby is not responding well. Um, 
there's also what I would call temporal risks. That means like a risk in the moment, okay? If a child is sick in any way or under the weather, that would be a reason not to vaccinate. If they're taking antibiotics, that would be a reason not to vaccinate. Um, the science is now clear that Tylenol or acetaminophen should never be given to a baby. And to give a baby that anywhere near a vaccination is a, is a huge danger. And in, in my day, back in 2002, the pediatricians routinely prescribed, you know, take Tylenol right after giving a child vaccines. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster because Tylenol um, takes the glutathione out of the body, which is one of our core ways of detoxifying. So those are a number of ways that parents can screen ahead of time for their baby. I think another question that gets asked all the time is, well, should I give all the vaccines at once? And you'll have the American Academy of Pediatrics and others say, oh, yeah, it's totally fine. There's no problem with giving a bunch of vaccines. But if you read the work of Dr. Zimmerman and Dr. Kelly that I was talking about with Kennedy Krieger, they view multiple vaccines as one of the big risks. Um, we also have work from a doctor named Gary Goldman and, and Neil Miller where they publish work showing that there's a high correlation between emergency room visits and the number of vaccines given at one time. And so I would argue that if you choose to vaccinate the baby for certain diseases, you should absolutely adhere to the idea of giving only one at an appointment just to lower the risks of something negative happening. Well, if you look at all of the, uh, the heavy metal toxicity, the formaldehyde, the glyphosate, uh, the you know some of the chick embryo various things that can cause they're they're toxic and can cause a lot of problems for a child. Then how does it even you know come to even common sense reason as far as I'm concerned to think that any immune system, especially an infant's immune system or a small child, would be able to handle multiples at once? Even one could be a risk factor. I do know that. Um, I've, I've done episodes on the Lyme, on Lyme and autism and the mold and biotoxin issue as well. And a lot of these things, Lyme can be transferred in utero by the mother. Or if the mother has an overgrowth of candida, then the baby is grown, born with that, which is a, a basically a yeast infection. And that will weaken the gut. And the gut takes makes 80% of the immune system. So there are many causal factors here that might think, oh, well, you know, my child hasn't been exposed, but you don't realize how they really have. So again, I have that free workshop. If, if anyone's interested, please go to naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop and uh, take a look at that. We have a uh, to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stay with us. You're listening to Naturally Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we are talking about How to End the Autism Epidemic, a book that was just written by J.B. Handley, who is our guest today, and it covers a lot of the aspects around vaccinations uh, and and scientific background. So at this in this segment right here, it's, I think it's really important if we can share with parents about what vaccination specific? Some parents will say, well, what about, you know, the polio? What about the DPT? And right now they're really pushing the flu shot. So maybe we can, you know, one by one go through some of the vaccinations and um, and give our listeners some, some information. So you want to go into that for us, JB? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the first thing that I say to parents is that a vaccine should be treated like the medical procedure that it is. And imagine if your little baby was going in for surgery or some kind of medical procedure, you would certainly take it upon yourself to learn everything you could about the risks of that surgery and the benefits from that surgery. The same level of rigor 
needs to be employed, in my opinion, for each vaccine. And think about what I said at the beginning of this show. In the mid-1980s, there were three licensed vaccines that babies would ever receive, the MMR, the DTP, and the polio vaccine. Today, there are 11 licensed vaccines. So that means there's eight new vaccines that weren't previously on the schedule. I think it's fair to ask, you know, in the mid-1980s, were babies dying in the streets? Did we have infectious disease epidemics that were ruining our country? Were we in the dark ages? All the threats that people make about what will happen if parents reduce the vaccination. The answer is obviously no. I was a sophomore in high school in the mid-1980s. We were not dying of infectious disease in any uh, material way. And so I hope that that sense of history can make people immediately a little bit cynical to what's happened today. But then more importantly, going through vaccine by vaccine and deciding for yourself and for your baby if you think the risk-reward is really worth it is critical, in my opinion. So let's start. Um, I think there are a handful of vaccines that rational thought and seeing what other first world countries do would lead a parent to say, I don't need that vaccine for my baby. So let me give a great example. In the United States, we vaccinate for chickenpox. This is a relatively recent vaccine around the year 2000. Um, lo and behold, in the United Kingdom, <laughs> the Brits, they don't vaccinate children for chickenpox. And the National Health Service on their website has a very clear reason why. When you don't get chickenpox as a baby, the risk of shingles as an adult goes way up. And so unlike Americans, the British understand the disease process and the complication that knocking chickenpox out of babies um, does for adults. And so they explicitly say we don't. Chickenpox is a relatively benign illness that most children get through safely. And if we, if we vaccinate for it, we'll have a shingles epidemic in the adult population. Well, guess what we're having in the United States? Way more shingles. Um, another deeply disturbing um, aspect of chickenpox, uh, there was a study out of Baylor University, and it showed that people who had had chickenpox had much lower rates of glioma, which is one of the most dangerous brain cancers in the world. Um, this is one of the very complex things that um, most people who... Um, idealized vaccines don't talk about, which is that uh, diseases can have certain protective properties once we've gone through them. The Baylor University scientists found this to be true with chickenpox. And so I can say unequivocally that I believe chickenpox is a mistake to vaccinate American babies for. Um, another great example would be the hepatitis B vaccine. Um, hepatitis B is an extremely low communicability disease, meaning that you, you pretty much have to either swap sexual or blood sexual fluids or blood in order to get it from somebody else, so it has very low communicability. Um, in many first world countries in the European Union, they only vaccinate um, for hepatitis B if the mother has hepatitis B. Well, in the United States, we screen very effectively all moms for hepatitis B before they give birth. So we already have that information, and I would certainly advocate vaccinating a baby of a hep B positive mom for hep B because hep B is a, is a debilitating disease if you have it. But the odds of any other baby getting hep B are very, very low. And the vaccine actually has a relatively short time period of efficacy. Uh, the estimates are somewhere between five and 10 years. And so the kinds of behaviors where hep B is actually a risk, which would be things like IV drug use and unprotected sex, um, typically people aren't experiencing those risks until at the very youngest, they're mid-teens. And so the rationale for giving hepatitis B, um, B to babies has never made sense. 
And I would say that that's a vaccine that no American child needs, uh, with the exception, obviously, of a mother who's HIV positive, which is a relatively sm- a very small portion of the population, but a known thing before the first birth. So there's two vaccines that I can immediately say are unnecessary. Um, rotavirus would be another great example of a vaccine that I think is unnecessary for American children. First of all, it has a risk of um, creating something called interception, which is a blockage of the gastrointestinal system. Um, it's a, it's a rotavirus in a first world country where children have good nutrition um, is like a three-day diarrhea if you get it. And so it's a very moderate sort of illness. And because there's a risk associated with the illness, I see no reason to, to advocate for that vaccine. And then finally, one of the more obvious ones would be the flu vaccine. Um, the flu vaccine has many known risks. Its efficacy is exceptionally low. Um, in certain years, it's only covered maybe 20 or 30% of the population at best. And so I would say for something where um, it often doesn't even work, to take, take a risk with that vaccine um, doesn't feel appropriate. And again, many European countries do not have the flu vaccine on their recommended schedule. It's it's most American parents don't realize we're the most vaccinated first world population, or the most vaccinated population in the world by a serious factor. Just I'll give you a simple example because I happen to know the numbers off the top of my head. So we give 36 separate vaccines to babies by the time they're five years old. Um, Denmark gives 16. And so, you know, the reason Denmark is an interesting one is that Denmark is an entry point for Europe. It's a, it's a well-touristed country. It's a beautiful country. There are tourists there all the time, and yet they give dramatically fewer vaccines than we do here in the United States. And so I often challenge people, so, you know, if you, if you give the Danish vaccine schedule to your baby in the United States, you're labeled an anti-vaxxer because you are giving fewer than the recommended schedule, and yet there's Denmark happy and thriving without infectious disease. So I think that I think that walking people through this kind of logic chain, I hope will empower a parent to do their own research and go vaccine by vaccine and really decide for themselves, what's the risk, what's the benefit, do we as a family really need this vaccine? And I also in the past have interviewed Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who is an MD, who's an advocate for, um, you know, the right to knowledge uh, and choose around vaccinations. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well uh, to that, that podcast interview that I did with her in the past. But we uh, we definitely talk about um, those pieces and, and you know, uh, certain vaccinations and the, the, the pros and the cons. But um, it, it is important to know that, you know, some people think, wow, well, I'm, I'm so fortunate to live in a, you know, um, you know, the United States where I could I have access to all of this. But they don't realize that uh, that there's there's so many health risks involved. But uh, but that's another episode where you can um, we can get into some of the other things as well, where you can I'll link to that in the show notes. We need to take a short break and uh, we will be right back. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Stay with us. We're coming to you live from Old Brave Media. And- Hi there, naturally. Uh, welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we have J.B. Handley with us, who has written the book, How to End the Autism Epidemic. And we've given some background on some science-based facts uh, regarding vaccinations and things that parents can know, and individual vaccinations as well. And uh, now I think it's important to know, okay, so many people have recognized that their child has been vaccine injured. They watched a change after their their child had a, a vaccination, which I know that is JB's story and is also my story. And I happened to be at the Autism One conference. Uh, it was 
two years ago, two and a half years ago now, when they first released the movie Vaxxed, and they showed it that weekend for one evening of the conference for all the parents who wanted to come see it, and there were over a thousand people in this room. And at the end, Andy Wakefield stood up and he said, or Del, Del Big Tree stood up and said, if you had a child who you felt was vaccine injured or you noticed a change in them after a vaccine, please stand up. And almost the entire room stood up. It was mind blowing to watch this. So I, I know that that you might be listening and thinking, okay, I did see a change in my child. Could that be what happened? So now let's talk about recovery. You know that I am all about naturally recovering autism. And again, the definition of recovery is to regain health. So um, I've got my free workshop. I've got my online program, as you're aware of, too, uh, the nonprofit Autism Moms Mentor Program to walk you through those steps. But we want to talk really those steps are about healing the gut, safe, natural detoxification, and then, you know, brain support repair. But, uh, JB, so why don't you give us some background on um, what you have found with recovery? Because I know that you've had some success as well with your own child. And my son today, as I mentioned earlier, is completely recovered when I was once told that he could not. So how is, uh, how is your, what is your story with that, and, and what do you have to share? Yeah, I mean, I mean the first thing I would say to you is that I always listen most closely to any parent who has a recovered child. Their truth matters more to me than anything else. Um, my son is not recovered. My son is dramatically better than he was. We had a son who literally lost all his words and was mute. Um, and he's regained his words. Um, and he's regained a million of other things. He's a happy, well-adjusted 16-year-old child, but he still has a debilitating condition, meaning that I'm not certain He'll be able to live on his own when he's an adult, but we continue to move in that direction. We're grateful for what I would call biomedical intervention, which has brought back so many of his skills and made him so much more healthy. Um, but as you were quick to point out, I listened early on in the show, um, recovery means different things for different children. You know, we just don't know why, you know, why did your son come back fully uh, and mine only partially, even though we each kind of dove in at the same time? Was it? Was it something you did? Was it the scale of his injury? Uh, was it was my, my son's genetic different than yours? Unfortunately, we just don't know the answers to those questions. But the thing I can tell you, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, is that I have met literally thousands of parents who, when they decided to intervene biomedically to treat their child for a physical condition, um, they've seen dramatic improvement and sometimes complete recovery. I think there are a number of paths that parents can go down. Um, every parent's journey is a little different. There's a wonderful organization called medmaps.org. It's M-E-D-M-A-P-S.org, um, where a number of physicians are available for parents to um, work closely with to try to determine you know, what exactly is wrong with their child and how to address it. Um, there are clearly 100% uh, natural approaches, which I think are wonderful. You know, my wife and I personally try to avoid prescription drugs at all costs. That's just kind of a personal ethos that we have about what we're willing to give our son and not give our son. And every family's different. Every every set of parents is different. Um, so there's a you know the fact that you provide parents with structure and guidance for a natural approach. I think is fantastic. You know, one of the things I would say to a parent who's maybe on the precipice and deciding, you know, am I willing to embark upon sort of this journey of biomedical intervention? Um, one of the things that typically happens when a child first um, 
it gets involved with a more natural approach where, you know, you change their diet and start doing things naturally, is that you, you see a change. If that change, I would tell a, a new parent, that is the energy. That is the life force that keeps you going. You know, when we removed gluten from my son's diet and his belly stopped being distended, his eczema cleared up, and he started looking us in the eye, we were on. <laughs> there was no doubt that we were going to keep going, and I was going to fight like hell to keep gluten out of my son's diet forever after. Because in our case, that was clearly something that did not fit well with his body. And, and once you get um, just a little morsel of affirmation that a choice you're making or something you're doing that's new is making your child better, you'll never stop. And to a skeptical parent, I would simply tell you, I've met many recovered children personally. You know, my wife and I did a, did a movie called Autism Yesterday, um, which you can still find online or on Facebook, that profiled five families who are in the process of recovering their kids. You know, this was done back in 2009, and of those five families, three of those children are in college on their own, doing their own thing, and two are far along on that path. And so there's, there's always hope of recovery. There's many different methods to get there. I think the fact that your program starts with improving the gut is critical. Um, what we're learning now is that the connection between the gut dysbiosis, right, when it's out of whack, and the cytokines that create inflammation in the brain. What we now are starting to believe is that the inflammation we're seeing in the brain doesn't just come from the brain, it also comes from the gut. And so if you bring down the disruption in the gut, you bring down the disruption in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. In the free workshop that I mentioned, I, I go into more of this detail about how the gut controls the brain and how it makes up 80% of the immune system. And again, it's a free workshop. It's at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop, no spaces, just free workshop after. And um, and it's it, it explains that to you. I also explain um, in step two about how the the heavy metal detoxification that you're all often given as a pharmaceutical drug of DMSA, um, why that's not a good choice. Um, and I explain that, and I and I definitely have a program where I offer uh, natural, safe choices um, that work, uh, backed by 300 studies. Uh, and then, of course, brain support repair and the co-infections. A lot of people don't know that up to 80% or more of children with autism have Lyme disease that is often not detected in traditional tests as well. So you've got to know about all of these aspects and how to treat them naturally and safely. And I do share that with you. So please take advantage of what I offer you. We need to take a short break. Please stay with us. We will be there and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Today we have special guest J.B. Handley with us, who has just written the book, How to End the Autism Epidemic. And I highly, highly suggest reading this book and getting the facts that it shares with you so that you have this knowledge. And um, we have a, another piece that we'd like to share uh, a, a little bit more about detoxification. JB, you were just mentioning something to me about uh, aluminum detoxification that you wanted to share. Could, could you could you do that? Yes. Uh, you know, if, if the published science that's come out lately is true, meaning that aluminum from the vaccine is a primary trigger of immune activation events in the brains of babies, then an obvious question for a parent would be, how do I get the aluminum out of my baby's brain? Um, there is a scientist from England, his name is Chris Exley, 
He's a tenured professor at Keele University. He's the preeminent aluminum neurotoxicologist in the world. And what Professor actually asserts is that the way to get aluminum out of the brain is by getting silica into the brain. Silica and aluminum in nature naturally bind. And if the silica and aluminum bind, it, it can then be escorted out of the brain. He claims the way to do that is to drink bioavailable silica, which a number of mineral waters happen to have. Uh, in particular, in the United States, Fiji water is rich with natural silica. And so what Dr. Exley would say is to drink a liter to a liter and a half of Fiji water within one hour so that you have enough water that it gets into the body and gets into the brain. And he has published science that shows that when that happens, the body starts to excrete aluminum. And I would, I would recommend that approach because it's so safe and so benign um, for children of any age and, frankly, for adults, too, since we're starting to learn that aluminum and Alzheimer's are also correlated. I actually met a guy the other day who, like, cuts aluminum for a living and sniffs aluminum dust all day. And I was like, man, I would start drinking Fiji water, you know, on the hour. So that's at least one very safe idea from the preeminent neurotoxicologist in the world for how to get aluminum out of the brain. Right. Non-toxic cookware. Be sure you're not putting any uh, aluminum on your food or cooking in it as well. And um, I've I've used... Yeah, you have enough in your environment. We're breathing it daily. Uh, and Terrace gel is a silica that I've used uh, that, uh, that is great for pulling it out of the gut as well. And then I use a, a, a zeolite uh, formula because not all zeolites are the same. That is uh, particularly intracellular. So it does get, it has a, a, pos- a negative charge and the heavy metals are, ne- are positively charged. So it connects to them. And then it doesn't allow for reabsorption as it's being excreted from the body, which is really nice because that is one of the downfalls of DMSA, the pharmaceutical grade one, is that for when it's not intracellular, cellular, but it also allows for reabsorption of the toxins as they're, as they're trying to be excreted. And then you can end up with them being spread throughout the body. And it also pulls out the good minerals that we need, like calcium and magnesium. So we don't want to have something that's doing that either. So yes, there are definitely positive and very, very effective natural safe alternatives to use. And, um, and I will link to everything that we talked about in this episode here at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash vaccination to look at the uh, future shows uh, to catch them live or also to look at any of the archives. We've created a page for you with an easy link at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash radio show. And do please look into uh, get registering for go today. Register right now for my free workshop that goes through the three steps to help you learn what you need to do to recover your child from autism safely and naturally and not miss any of the important steps. And I don't want to see you wasting any more time or money. I've done the work for you. Please take advantage of it. That's at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop. And please do uh, get J.B. Hanley's book, How to End the Autism Epidemic. It's available now, uh, Amazon and many bookstores. And J.B., I greatly appreciate you writing the book and being an advocate to help parents and being out there doing what you're doing to help uh, in any way that you can as well. It's important that um, that uh, people get support because, as we know, it's it's challenging to have a child with autism and and not know what to do, especially. So, uh, thank you again for what you're doing and sharing. You know, it's an honor to have been here. I'm grateful for what you're doing, and any parent listening who's on the fence, I would just tell you, it's time. Give give it a shot. Give recovery a shot. Give natural recovery a shot. We have so many 
amazing stories of children coming back and, and leading normal lives again. There is genuinely hope after an autism diagnosis, as you well know. Right. And I always tell parents, we never know exactly what the level of recovery will be for your child, but they can improve. So why don't why not find out what their optimum level can be? Because you have the right resources. So thank you again, everybody. Thank you. Sorry. I, I said every improvement in my son is like is like a new day for my family. It's it's a wonderful process to be able to go through. Oh yeah, I mean think about it. you got his language back. He couldn't speak. Now he can speak. That is that's a that's a huge leap in recovery. It's you know your child can't yes. sleep through the night. Now they can sleep or they hurt. Our our kids have stomach aches and headaches. My son would wake up at three a.m. screaming with these stomach aches that would just completely freak yes. me out. And it was after my second trip to the ER and I saw that nobody was going to be helpful and nobody knew anything that I that it was up to me but I'm thankful for that day yep. because it really fueled a fire that <laughs> brought me to where I am today and Quickly to my son's recovery mm-hmm. right that that exactly. uh, that uh, you know get discouraged get determined and um you know really um you know don't give up there's always hope and there's a lot of great resources available for you and stay optimistic that would be another thing too because i know at times you think can it be and we're here to tell you that's happened for us it's happened for many parents and we want it to happen for you as well for your child and um, please look into the resources we share thank you for being here today for being a proactive parent and doing everything you can to educate yourself on what you can do for your child and we will be back next week and we look forward to seeing you then this is Karen Thomas from Naturally Recovering Autism we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio and have a great week we look forward to seeing you next time